Hello, and welcome to the second installment of our ALSPathways.com podcast series. My name is Jody O'Donnell Ames. I'm a writer, speaker, and nonprofit founder. I was also a caregiver to my late husband, Kevin, who battled ALS for six years. Today, I'll be your host of this educational podcast. In the last podcast, we reviewed the basics of ALS, answering questions such as, what exactly is ALS? How does it affect your body? What are common signs and symptoms of ALS? And who is most likely to be diagnosed with ALS? If you missed that podcast, be sure to give it a listen. After all, understanding your disease is the first step to helping manage ALS, which is exactly what we're going to talk about today. As always, please remember that the information and advice presented in this podcast are general in nature and are not intended to replace or substitute speaking with your healthcare providers. Please consult your healthcare team with any questions or concerns regarding your medical condition. Okay, now that you or a loved one has been diagnosed with ALS, what now? What can you expect? How should you prepare? And where should you turn for help and guidance? Keep in mind that everything you need to know about managing ALS can't be encapsulated in a podcast. Quite frankly, ALS isn't a simple disease. It affects everyone differently, and it progresses at different rates. As ALS progresses, you will continuously be faced with new challenges, and you will need to make important decisions about your health along the way. Never forget, though, that you are not alone. You have your health care providers whom you should consult every step of the way. Some people with ALS are fortunate enough to have their caregivers, family, and friends who can provide both physical and emotional support. And through support groups and patient organizations, you have the collective experience of people with ALS just like you, people who've been where you are. Ask your health care providers about support groups near you. Let's begin today by discussing an important step in managing your disease, maintaining a good relationship with your healthcare team. Think about your past experiences. If you had a specific heart issue, your doctor may have referred you to a cardiologist. Or if you had stomach problems, perhaps you saw a gastroenterologist. With ALS, the same idea applies. Unlike other diseases, many of which affect a certain part or region of your body, ALS can affect muscles located all over your body, the muscles in your legs that affect mobility, the muscles in your chest that control breathing, the muscles in your mouth and throat that affect chewing and swallowing, and so on. There are experts in each of these fields that have deeper insight and experience with these symptoms, especially in people with ALS. These experts make up your clinical team. In addition to working with your primary care doctor or neurologist, A multidisciplinary clinic provides the benefits of working with a number of different specialists all in one place. You can find many of those experts at an ALS Association certified center, which are commonly here referred to as ALS clinics. Here, healthcare providers from a range of disciplines work together to build a personalized care plan to help address your unique needs. Some of the specialists you may find at ALS clinics are dietitians or nutritionists who can recommend specific dietary solutions to help ensure you're receiving the correct nutrients and number of calories. Respiratory therapists who will work with you as it becomes harder to breathe when the muscles involved in respiration weaken. 
speech pathologists who can help manage speech difficulties and teach you techniques to help preserve your voice and speaking abilities. Social workers who are dedicated to determining your social and emotional needs and finding solutions to help meet those needs. Physical therapists who can recommend exercises and treatments that may help you stay as strong, flexible, and mobile for as long as possible. Occupational therapists who can teach you new ways to do common everyday activities and advise which equipment or technologies can help improve mobility. Not only does receiving this type of individualized, multidisciplinary care provide convenience, research has shown that these centers may also help improve mental and social well-being, as well as prolong survival time. ALS clinics are located across the country. Check with your healthcare providers to see if there's a certified clinic or center in your area. For some people, visiting an ALS clinic may not be practical or geographically possible. That's okay. You may still be able to receive the multidisciplinary care you need by working with many different experts in your area. Speak with your healthcare providers about specialists located near you. As your healthcare team grows and you continue your journey with ALS, you're going to come across many providers. It's important to take notes, lots of them, and if you have difficulty writing, ask your caregiver for help. And keep all of their contact information in a centralized location so you can reference the right person when needed. If you visit ALSPathways.com, we've provided a simple, print-friendly sheet to organize this information. Okay, let's take a break. Remember how in the last podcast, we stopped to pause and take a breather after a chunk of information? Let's do that again. Use this opportunity to pause, reflect, and write down any information you find particularly important. During these breaks, I'm going to offer useful tips that may be helpful to you. You can start practicing these recommendations today, and in fact, I encourage you to. We briefly covered today's tip in the last podcast, but I really can't elaborate on it enough. Consider your mental health. ALS is often thought of as a physical disease. After all, it affects your muscles, and many of these management tips we're speaking about today involve helping maintain certain physical abilities but the impact of ALS can cause profound emotional responses. Seeking help from a trained mental health professional may help you cope with your diagnosis at different points throughout your journey. And because ALS can affect the individual as well as family and friends, everyone may benefit from this type of emotional support. Whatever thoughts and feelings you may be having are okay, but remember that you're not alone. There are people who care about you and are there to listen and offer support. Reach out to them. Now I want to talk about a few specific symptoms you may experience and tips to help manage these symptoms. Before we begin, there are a few things to keep in mind. First, please remember that this information and advice is general in nature and in no way intended to replace or substitute speaking with your healthcare providers. If or when you begin to experience these symptoms, please speak with your healthcare providers as soon as possible. Also, the symptoms we're going to be discussing are not inclusive of all ALS symptoms. Remember, everyone is different. The reason I chose to focus on symptoms that affect your eating and drinking, speech and breathing is that these symptoms can impact vital bodily functions as well as have a major effect on your quality of life. 
One important group of symptoms we will not be covering in detail today are those that impact your overall mobility. These are extremely important and for many people with ALS are the first symptoms they experience. They may include hand weakness, weakness in your legs, ankles, and feet, difficulty walking or doing normal activities, tripping and falling, and drop foot, which is having trouble lifting the front part of your foot, leading you to drag your foot along the ground when you walk. Because these symptoms are so important and there are many different assistive technologies that may help improve mobility and allow you to lead a more independent life, we'll be dedicating an entire podcast to them in the near future. In the meantime, let's start by talking about eating and drinking. There is a complex network of muscles in the mouth and throat that work in harmony to move food into the stomach. With ALS, these muscles can weaken and you can have increasing trouble controlling your lips, tongue, jaw, and throat. When this happens, eating and drinking can become challenging and even dangerous. Why? Well, for one, you may now have to concentrate more on chewing and swallowing, which for some people makes eating and drinking less enjoyable. Some people may even start eating less, which can deprive the body of calories and nutrients and lead to unhealthy weight loss. This is such a problem that it is estimated malnutrition affects up to 50% of people with ALS and can even impact quality of life and survival time. Also, if not approached carefully, eating and drinking can become choking hazards because food is more likely to become stuck in the throat. You know that uncomfortable feeling when something goes down the wrong pipe causing you to cough for a few minutes? That can begin to happen more often. By working with your healthcare providers, there are many tips and techniques you can use to make chewing and swallowing easier. If your healthcare provider says you're still able to safely consume foods and liquids, consider the following. Cut your food into smaller bites and take smaller sips of liquids. This can make food easier to swallow and reduces choking risk. Next, try swallowing two to three times per mouthful to help ensure the food has cleared your throat before the next bite. You may also want to experiment with head positioning. Some people find it helpful to tilt their chin upwards or downwards when swallowing. When it comes to food, solid foods that are hard, dry, or brittle are challenging to swallow and can be a choking hazard. To be safe, you should try to moisten dry foods with gravies, butters, oils, or sauces. Also take a sip of water between bites. If you'd like, experiment with eating pureed foods. With some minor experimentation and a few quick internet searches for recipes, you can create flavorful, filling, and vitamin-rich meals. Another tip is to try to avoid consuming foods that mix solids and liquids together. Think cereal or chunky soup. Try eating foods with uniform consistencies. Now let's take a minute to talk about liquids. Believe it or not, liquids can be more difficult to swallow than food because they travel quickly from the mouth to the pharynx, the tube that connects to the esophagus, and your body sometimes has trouble coordinating this process. By mixing liquids with thickeners, you can help slow this movement down. Ask your healthcare providers about commercially available thickening agents, as well as common household ingredients that can help. Finally, Ask your healthcare providers about medications and devices that can help control excess salivation. Not only can excess salivation cause discomfort, but it's also a frequent cause of choking, 
especially during meals when saliva production naturally increases. Communicating regularly with your healthcare providers and discussing tips and techniques to help ease chewing and swallowing can help prevent malnutrition and choking and may help you retain normal eating and drinking habits longer. At some point, you and your healthcare team may consider inserting a percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy tube, also referred to as a PEG tube. These may become necessary when eating and drinking become such a challenge that you're not getting enough calories and nutrients or your choking risk is unacceptably high. PEG tubes can help make life easier, ensure you get enough calories and nutrients, prevent choking, and allow you to conserve energy. So what is a PEG tube? Well, simply, it's a small tube that's inserted directly in your stomach to deliver food, liquid, and medication. There are many common myths and misperceptions of PEG tubes that simply aren't true. Let's put some of these to rest. Some people believe inserting a PEG tube is a major surgery. This is not the case. In fact, it's an outpatient procedure that takes only about 15 minutes. Your healthcare provider will need to make a small incision and in many cases you'll be in and out of the hospital the same day. Other people refuse or delay PEG tubes because they believe once a tube is inserted, they'll have to completely stop eating and drinking by mouth. Once again, false. As long as your healthcare provider deems it safe to eat, many people with ALS initially continue to eat by mouth for enjoyment while using their PEG tube for hydration or supplementation. And lastly, there are aesthetic concerns. Will a PEG tube be embarrassing? Oftentimes, nobody will even know you have a PEG tube, unless you tell them. The PEG sits slightly above the belly button and sticks out slightly. You may want to avoid tight-fitting tops, but for the most part, it can be easily concealed by tucking it into a skirt or pants. Feeding is usually done with a drip bag or syringe, but it can be done privately and discreetly, even when you're away from home. There you have it. Inserting a PEG tube is a routine surgery of about 15 minutes, does not fully replace eating by mouth, and can be hidden with minimal effort. Most healthcare providers recommend getting a feeding tube early before it becomes absolutely necessary so you have more time to adapt and recover. Next, let's discuss speech. Some of the muscles in your mouth that allow you to chew and swallow also give you the ability to speak. ALS may cause these muscles to weaken and or tighten, which can impair your speech. You may hear this symptom referred to as dysarthia. Symptoms of speech disturbances are subtle and often overlooked, so it's important to remain aware of various speaking difficulties you may experience. Is your speech becoming slow, slurred, or unclear? Are you having difficulty managing pitch, tone, or rhythm of your voice? Is your voice becoming faint? Are you having trouble pronouncing certain words or sounds? Is your voice taking on a nasal quality? Are lengthy conversations difficult? If you answered yes to any of these, you should speak with your healthcare providers ASAP. There are many available technologies and communication aids that can assist with speech, but let's start with some tips and techniques you can use during conversations. Give speech your full attention. Don't try to eat, drink, or do other activities while talking. Speak slowly and carefully, pronouncing all syllables in each word. Repeat words if necessary. Take breaths often, which can help preserve energy so you can speak louder. 
Use gestures and facial expressions to help convey your thoughts. Use synonyms in place of hard to say words. These tips may help you temporarily project your voice and speak more clearly, but eventually it may become harder to express yourself. Fortunately, there's an entire field dedicated to helping people communicate with limited speech and or no speech at all. These strategies and assistive technologies are collectively referred to as Augmentative or Alternative Communication, or AAC for short. At its most basic level, Augmentative communication is for people who can still speak but have limited ability or some difficulty being understood, while alternative communication is for those who've lost all ability to speak clearly. Let's start with augmentative communication. Let's say you can still speak, but maybe your voice is increasingly faint or your speech is becoming slurred. Augmentative communication is a group of low-tech strategies that help support and even supplement your speech. This can include writing using a pen and paper or whiteboard if you still have hand function. Some people with ALS like to write down a topic of conversation before beginning to speak, which puts the listener in the right mind frame so that they can better understand what you're saying. There are also symbol or picture boards. These are simply boards that contain pictures representing common tasks or requests you might ask for. You can save your breath and simply point to a picture of food if you're hungry or a pharmacy if it's time to pick up medication. With augmentative communication, there's no one-size-fits-all solution. Working with your healthcare providers and caregivers, it's good to experiment with what method best meets your needs. As your ALS progresses, you may struggle with speech and potentially lose the ability to speak altogether. However, this doesn't mean you must stop expressing yourself or sacrifice your needs in once. There are several helpful alternative communication methods available, and you should work with your healthcare providers to learn what is best for you. If you still have hand function, there are many available apps on tablets and smartphones that convert your text into speech. Simply type in what you'd like to say in a synthetic voice, think GPS, will dictate your words. Next is voice and message banking, which is one of the most common and important techniques for people with ALS. Simply put, both voice and message banking is the process of recording messages or speech sounds for later use. It is important to do this early in your disease course, before your voice starts to deteriorate, to preserve the clearest representation of your voice. There is an important difference between voice banking and message banking. With voice banking, you record many different words and sentences. Then these samples of your voice are imported into a speech-generating device, and they create a synthesized version of your voice. As technologies progress, voice banking has begun to sound more and more natural. With message banking, on the other hand, you record meaningful phrases or sentences or statements. For instance, telling someone you love them or your favorite joke or common requests. Then using a speech-generating device, these voice clips are played verbatim from a selected message bank. The main benefit of message banking is that it uses your actual voice so it sounds very natural. The drawback, of course, is that unlike voice banking, you can only select voice clips that were previously recorded. Okay, let's take another break. I want to take a moment to speak about being proactive versus reactive there's an important distinction here. It can be important to learn about and prepare for any symptoms or lifestyle changes you could experience before they happen. 
It's better to be proactive and plan ahead than to react to symptoms as they appear or progress. Let's use what we just discussed, voice and message banking, as an example of why it's important to be proactive. When recording your voice for future play, you want the quality of these recordings to sound as clear, crisp, and coherent as you can. Whether you have no symptoms of voice impairment or are already experiencing deterioration, it's important to speak with your healthcare provider about the benefits of voice and message banking as soon as possible. Another benefit of being proactive is that many helpful interventions like software to record your voice and speech generating devices can be expensive. In fact, there are many types of communication aids and assistive devices and different technologies you and your healthcare providers will explore, covering all symptoms from eating and drinking to speaking, breathing, and mobility. Some may be covered under insurance, others may not. For some, you'll have to justify the medical necessity to an insurance company and possibly appeal its decision if it doesn't come back in your favor. This takes time, so waiting until symptoms appear may leave you temporarily unprepared. Being proactive can help you acquire these helpful technologies before you absolutely need them. The last thing I want to talk about today is breathing. Inside your chest is a large dome-shaped muscle called the diaphragm that separates your lungs from your stomach. The diaphragm and other chest muscles do most of the work of moving air in and out of your lungs. When you breathe in, these muscles contract or tighten to help pull air into your lungs. When you breathe out, these muscles relax. Feel that? This process is called ventilation. With ALS, the diaphragm and other respiratory muscles weaken and must now work harder to supply the body with oxygen and remove carbon dioxide. With weakened respiratory muscles, you often can't keep up with the demand, so it makes sense that one of the first breathing problems is often shortness of breath. You may also begin to have trouble breathing while lying flat on your back. When you're in bed, for example, your diaphragm must push your stomach contents away from your chest with each contraction increasing the effort it takes for each breath. You may feel restless or short of breath. As you can imagine, this can lead to trouble sleeping. Your healthcare provider may suggest some techniques that may help you breathe easier and more independently. Conserve your energy. You can do this by resting between activities and spacing apart strenuous tasks such as bathing, dressing, and eating. Try to reduce unnecessary steps and plan your movements ahead of time. Sit when you can. Elevate your head. At night, while lying in bed, place extra pillows under your head and neck. Do breathing exercises. With the recommendation of your respiratory therapist, fully expand the lungs by taking five to 10 deep breaths with short rests in between several times each day. Cough often. Coughing can help clear the lungs and airways of fluid, phlegm, and food particles. Unfortunately, weakened chest muscles can make coughing difficult please check with your healthcare providers for exercises that may make this process easier. Eventually, as ALS progresses and the muscles in your chest weaken, you'll most likely need additional breathing assistance from mechanical aids. This is extremely important because declining respiratory function is the leading cause of death among those with ALS. This isn't intended to scare you, but to inspire you to take a proactive role in your breathing early in your disease course as certain interventions have been proven to improve your quality of life and help prolong survival time. One of these interventions is called non-invasive ventilation, NIV. During NIV, 
a bilevel positive airway pressure machine, commonly referred to as a BiPAP, delivers air to your lungs under slight pressure via a face mask. Bilevel simply means the machine has two cycles. As you breathe in, the BiPAP machine pushes extra air into your lungs with slight pressure. As you breathe out, the machine relieves this pressure, allowing you to push air out more easily. BiPAP systems are portable and removable. They can be used for as many hours during the day or night as you wish and can be easily taken on and off. They can also be worn while asleep or at rest to help you breathe better. Eventually, as lung function continues to decrease, you and your healthcare providers may consider the need for invasive ventilation. While non-invasive ventilation helps support your respiratory muscles, invasive ventilation does all of the work for them. The first step in providing invasive ventilation is a tracheostomy, a procedure where a tube is inserted into the trachea, or windpipe, through a surgically created opening. The tube is then attached to a machine, ventilator, that pumps air into the lungs. The advantage of invasive ventilation is that it provides much more normal respiratory muscle function than non-invasive ventilation and can help prolong survival. However, it requires considerably more care for both caregivers and healthcare providers and may affect your ability to speak. Let's stop here for a moment. I know this may be overwhelming and especially if you've been recently diagnosed with ALS, it may be scary but it can be beneficial to be prepared than to remain uninformed. Earlier in the podcast, we mentioned that you're not alone, that there are healthcare providers as well as family, friends, and caregivers who will provide physical and emotional support along your journey. For today's final support tip, I'd like to discuss one additional channel of support, the many different patient resources available to you. Beyond working with an ALS clinic or center, there are many places where you can find additional ALS information and support online and throughout the country. There are patient groups and programs that offer a wide range of services. There are organizations that provide financial assistance for certain procedures and devices. There are patient advocacy groups and nonprofit organizations and charities and places to learn about new and ongoing ALS research and clinical trials. And as mentioned before, there are many support groups across the country for people just like you. Ask your healthcare providers about patient resources or groups they're aware of in your area and look on your own as well. In the next podcast, we'll be switching gears and discussing what it means to be a caregiver to someone with ALS and how to provide the best possible support without forgetting to look after one's own physical and emotional needs. Even if you're the one with ALS, it's still important to understand the rewarding, albeit challenging, roles and responsibilities of being a caregiver. As always, if you're looking for more information about ALS, you can always visit our website at ALSPathways.com. While you're there, or if you've downloaded this podcast on iTunes or Google Play, let us know if the podcast has been helpful. Please rate the podcast. Tell us what you like, what you didn't like, what we can do better. Ultimately, your comments will help us provide richer content in the future. Also, feel free to suggest additional topics of interest you'd like us to cover. We read all suggestions and take everything into consideration. Once again, my name is Jodi O'Donnell Ames, and this has been the ALSPathways.com podcast series. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.